The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, we talk about how indigenous cosmologies have helped form Sarah's Christian faith and how we both have adopted a creation-centered approach to being an Anabaptist Christian. So, Sarah, one of the things that I have found most meaningful and really powerful, I have to say, in the formation of my own faith as a Christian woman has been talking with you where you bring your indigenous cosmology to your own indigenous faith. And that's been really powerful for me. And um, I know you've talked about um, sort of your prayer practice, I guess you would say. And I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about that. Sure, you bet. And, you know, it's been a really powerful and important um, conversation for me too, Sherry. And I feel like um, there are ways in which our theology has so informed each other. I, I have also felt very influenced by the way that you look at the world and the way you worship and activate your Anabaptist faith um, towards repair and also working in defense of the earth. I'd be happy to talk about prayer. Um, the people that that I come from, the Tewa people, begin each day at sunrise making offerings um, to the east, and they they say prayers of thanksgiving for the faithfulness that's demonstrated with sunrise um, and care for care for us as a people as the sun rises. And so carrying on that tradition, my son, Micah, and I make an offering every morning at sunrise with cornmeal. And we, we pray at that time. And, you know, this, I think is a demonstration of a daily commitment to reverence rather than a weekly commitment, um, which is, I think the way I was trained, um, in Christian faith. And so, you know, I really feel like it's a different experience when my church is everywhere and not just located in one building. So the creator is imbued in creation and is everywhere. One of the things we really talk about every single morning is the ability to sense the creator under our feet as we are standing there making an offering that it's possible to sense the creator um, in that moment and in every moment in, in the soil in the, in the solidity of the ground and the, the air in the sky above us um, in the life all around. And um, 
I guess one of the things that I think about is, you know, what is a commitment to creation if this is our understanding of reality? You know, I think in the dominant culture in the United States, we have a tendency to compartmentalize things because we are linear, linear and reductive in our thinking. So I may go to my Wednesday night climate change group, et cetera. But after that, then I'm going to return to my real life. And so I may go to Sunday service and be with my friends and community to sing and pray. Um, but then I return to, to the weekly life. And so I feel really that that, that is part of how um, I was acculturated into the Christian um, tradition. And so, which is different from being committed to the creator as a manifestation in creation itself. So, for example, when there's a natural disaster, um, you know, going outside and acknowledging the awesome forces that are at play and, you know, praying to the ground. I know that sounds that sounds strange, but I mean, acknowledging God that is in the ground. Yeah. I don't think it sounds strange at all. There, there is a colleague that I met from India um, when I was working with the World Council of Churches in helping to realize the Indigenous Peoples Program. Um, his name is Wati Longchar. He's an academic and, um, and an Indigenous um, leader from um, the Naga people. And he talked about one of the names of God um, being the one who goes down into the soil with the seed. And so that one, um, who is God? God is that one that goes down into the soil with the seed and rises on the third day. Um, and so that, that connection, that understanding that this is a sacred thing that's happening when, when a plant is, um, is breaking through the soil and, and coming up every time that's a miracle. Yeah. So it's a different understanding of what God is and our commitment, um, to God. Yeah. I really, um, love that. You know, I, and I feel like I, um, you know, I was also probably formed in a Christianity somewhat similar to yours. I know you were formed in an evangelical Christianity, Christianity, but I will say, because I grew up in this rural area where there's a lot of love of the land among the people I, I grew up with, at least at the time I grew up with them, a lot of the people were farmers who had been farming the same land for sometimes, you know, decades since some of them into the, you know, maybe a hundred years. And I think there was this real love for the land that came through, um, you know, we never prayed to the God of the ground, but there was a way in which I felt like there was this kind of reverence that I'm really grateful for. But I felt like for myself, I found a lot of that sense of the God in creation through Celtic Christianity, which I think a lot of, which I think of as kind of an indigenous Christian, a European, indigenous European Christian sort of Christian uh, faith. And 
you know, this, I named my son Patrick because I love the, this prayer that's been attributed to St. Patrick so much. It's a long prayer, but the part I really love is this. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, brilliance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. So the prayer is saying, I arise today through the strength of these forces of creation. And it's, I just love it. And there's not very much, I don't think, in the sort of traditional Christian uh, way of speaking about creation that is that creation-centered. And I I really love it. Yeah, so, you know, I, I just, I love that. And thank you for sharing that, Sherry, because I just really relate to that too. And there's there's a deep sense of comfort in being able to acknowledge the ever presence of the creator in that way, that that we are not alone, that we are embedded in a life web of mutual dependence. And so, you know, when when I say prayers with my son in the morning, one of the things I pray every single day is that he will be able to sense the creator with him wherever he is under his feet that he can mm. that he can feel mm. it that it's real everywhere and in every moment and you know i live as i mentioned before in the yakima reservation among the yakima people and you know this has been an amazing opportunity over the last 15 years to live together and to learn and and just be in community together. And one of the things I've really noticed, although I don't know how much we've talked about it explicitly is um, there isn't much Mm. of an investment in the American dream as, as, you know, I understand it through the narrative, you know, that I learned in public school and then in university or through, you know, mass media or whatever. It's just, there's really not much of an investment in the American dream that I sense and so um, I think it's because of this difference in cosmology, um, yeah. which is a difference in reality. What is your security when your orientation is the earth? That is to say, when your understanding of reality is the earth itself. Um, and so within that context, the American dream, which is about wealth accumulation And, um, well, consumption, it doesn't really hold a lot of meaning when your orientation is embedded in creation in that way. And there's, there's not really a desire to be a part of it because it seems so odd, um, to think of oneself as a consumer or as, um, as someone who has as a purpose accumulation, um, that's really runs counter to an understanding of reality where you are mutually dependent and embedded in a, in a life web. There's not really a desire to be a part of it, the American dream. Well, I think what's even even more so, and we've talked about this before, is that I think within, 
you know, I think one of the things I love about being Mennonite and, and Anabaptism is there has been this focus on simple living and, um, and, and kind of an anti-consumerism and an anti-accumulation. That's not to say that uh, Mennonites can't be as prey to um, the American dream as anybody, but I think at least there is embedded within Anabaptism, that focus on simple living. But we've talked about the fact that even if the focus isn't on accumulation or consumption, there's still this way in like, where is our security? And I feel like what I've heard you say is for, I think what you experience yourself is that when you, what is your, when you, when your security is the earth and being embedded in this life web, and you're not, in a way, depending on um, what your stocks or your um, your retirement portfolio or your, you know, all those things that really most Mennonites, and I'm including myself in this, really depend upon. And I'm not saying there's any simple answer here, right? But I just feel like you've really said, like, where does our security actually come from? Yeah. When you say that, Sherry, it reminds me of the psalmist. You can help me get through this. Let's see, I haven't, maybe haven't memorized it as well as I could have, but you know, I, um, um, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Um, and that's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, um, who, who created the heaven and earth. And, and I also think, you know, isn't there a, part of that that says, um, who never slumbers or sleeps. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I am. Sarah, that was like my favorite Psalm when I was growing up. I used to go walk in the hills where around where I lived alone. And I would sing, I would say that Psalm to myself. Um, yeah, I'm actually looking it up to see if I can find, but you're right. I think the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Yeah, and and that is a creator embedded and imbued in creation itself. You know, yeah. not not inward, not in the internal, uh, not in the self, but in creation. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just aware as you're saying that that I must have loved that psalm because it was it was this creation centered sort of spirituality or faith that I was finding within my Bible. Um, and it, it was, a, it's, it still is, it's been one of my foundational Psalms for my entire life, really, actually. So I want to problematize what we're talking about a little bit, because I read this uh, essay recently, I was on retreat, and uh, I just grabbed this book off the shelf at the retreat place which I always love doing because I always find there's something very serendipitous that happens when I do that. The book was actually by a Canadian poet named Tom Tim Lilburn, but he quotes this philosopher named George Grant, uh, who's a Canadian philosopher who died, I think, in the 80s. But he said in this um, essay that the descendants of European settlers would never be able to hold the gods of the new world as their own. So they would never be indigenous where they are, no matter how long the history of their stay on the continent might be. This rootlessness was ours because of what we are and what we did. And what we are is, he says, is that we sort of detached long ago while still in Europe from I don't exactly understand what he means by this, but from this part of the Western tradition that would have taught us how to live undivided from one's earth. 
And he said, now we cannot eat most, I think what he means is most white settlers cannot even name what we most need to not live undivided from one from the earth. And we can't name that even. He said, what we did is we met the new land as conquerors and subjugated it. We moved too quickly over the ground, omnivorous, self-uprooting on principle, marked by the inevitably anarchic character of capitalism to shaped by where our bodies were. In other words, we we were not shaped by where our bodies were. He said, this homelessness of ours has proved disastrous, both for human souls, for bodies, and for the colonized land. And he seems to be saying something that Mark Charles, um, who we are uh, are interviewing, says in his book on the doctrine of discovery that there's this way in which uh, Europe white settlers are homeless, placeless, rootless, um, and and as this guy says, because of who we are, in, in the sense we aren't, we haven't been people formed to see ourselves as connected to creator and creation as we've been talking and then also because of what we did so in that i guess i hear a couple of things one of the things i hear is this is why repair is so necessary for the soul of the white settler you know that because what we did why i think it's why i feel like i have to work on repair um because it actually is for sort of the good of my own soul and body in the sense of trying to heal a, that breach. Um, but it also, I'm aware if you, if I really took this to heart would make me feel like maybe there's no way I as a white settler can ever be as connected to land and to the God in the land is what you're describing. I actually don't believe that this placelessness has to be the lot of white settlers, but I do believe, but I, and I believe that there can be a commitment to creation and to repair and that that can help make us placed people. Um, and there's some things that you've said that I was really struck by. You said before that maybe the most important thing is to be committed to something other than the self, something bigger than the self. Like that's kind of even behind that idea of being a part of like to being connected to creation is to be committed to something other than the self. And that that directly connects with what you understand about parts of the Anabaptist tradition. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, one of the, one of the, the challenging drivers of dominant culture in the United States is individualism. And, and that individualism is really almost feels like every, every person for themselves. You know, I, I have to take care of myself um, with this rugged individualism and um, consequences be damned, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it, from that point of view, everything is connected to the self, you know, the center of the universe is myself. Mm. And that is very counter to indigenous cosmology that as I've learned it, uh, uh, among a variety of people across the world and, um, in, in a community among the Wayana in the Guiana shield in South America, um, there, 
is an orientation in space that is connected directly to the river. So mm-hmm. if you if you ask somebody directions, they're always going to give you directions with a reference to the river, not mm-hmm. the self. So if they say, you know, go north, south, or east, or west, or, or um, you know, left or right, it's not in relation to them or where the person is standing. It is in relation to the river because wow. the, the, the orienting place is the river. So, you know, this sounds kind of funny, but if you, if you line up objects, if you ask them, Hey, can you put these objects in order? They are going to be in alignment with the river. So the sense of self, the self is not, not the center. It's not, it's not the origin of, um, of orientation, I guess I would say. And so, you know, and that is a really profound, um, sense of being that it's not just, you know, psychological or emotional, or I've decided it's this way. It's an orientation to the world, you know, an identity and and who I am and, and what I'm a part of. And so I feel like part of the Anabaptist tradition that has really appealed to me is this, um, this, um, concept of Galassenheit. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. And, you know, to me, Galassenheit is humility. I'm not the most important thing in the world. And my need is not the only need. And my need is subordinate to the need of the group, which is also a very indigenous sort of sensibility. Um, and I think this is rooted in a, a, a culture of collectivism that's not individualistic. And I think caring for the earth in general is with an eye to the cycles of creation itself, not only just in an annual cycle of birth and, um, and, and death or creating hummus or compost, but also across generations, an understanding of what's required to preserve soil, to build up soil, and a commitment to those processes um, on behalf of one's descendants. And I think this, this culture of collectivism is a thing that helps a person to, to be oriented in that um, life web. I'm not yeah. separate. I'm not independent from it. I am part of it. And, and my behavior has consequences. You know, I'm yeah. not all powerful and I'm also, um, and I also, what I do has, has impact. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's directly connected, I think, to that simple living idea, the more with less idea, the live simply so others can simply live idea that, you know, I mean, I did grow up with just what I would call just basic Midwestern farmer thrift. So I don't think that was unique to Mennonites. I think in that time and place, that was very common. But I do think there was something in addition in the way I was raised uh, because of this in, in my Mennonite tradition about, you know, being aware of the impact my consumption had on others around me, mm-hmm. um, being mindful about that impact. Um, you know, it's funny when I uh, was leaving home and in the 80s and going out and living, you know, all over the country, basically 80s and 90s, the thing that people would most know 
Mennonites about when I would introduce myself as a Mennonite is the more with less cookbook. And then also <laughs> the more with less, you know, whatever that there was a book about living more with less. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, you know, that's not a bad thing to be known for. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that part of my tradition. I think that's in a way where uh, it's, that's a way into this creation centered way of looking at faith, I think in a way. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what has been kind of repeated to me over and over and over again by the elders um, of various traditions that have been, have shown me the kindness um, and patience to, to try and help me to learn is, is really um, to live in the world in a way where I'm leaving no trace and walking gently on the ground. And the successful life is one that, that leaves nothing behind or, or stories so that um, I'm actually preserving the, the potential for, for people to live, um, that come, the ones that will come after me, um, and to preserve what is. Um, and I feel like this indigenous worldview is one that's shared by Anabaptists. And so I, I think about my own conversion story. You know, I, became, I joined the Mennonite church as a, as an adult in my early twenties. And it's hard to know, is it because, um, because of my own conditioning, it was familiar. <laughs> there are oh. many things that, that feel familiar and, um, and comforting, I think, um, in the Anabaptist, uh, faith and worldview. How did you get to know Mennonites? I mean, how, who, how did you even hear about them in a way? Oh my gosh, there's a story there. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's a longish story. We can talk about it another time too. Um, I, it, it was really related to the war. You know, there was when we invaded Afghanistan and then Iraq, that was really um, a crisis for me. And it, I very much felt myself, you know, sort of, part of the events of my generation, that this was such a profound thing that was happening and um, happening to the world and happening to me. And I felt compelled to worship with people and to be with people who had a nonviolent orientation. So I actually Hmm. searched searched for who that might be. And tried out wow. a couple of things, and um, ended up remaining in a in the Mennonite congregation in Seattle. You said remaining in the Mennonite congregation in Seattle. You were right. already there, or you mean you found them when you were searching for this nonviolent Christian faith? Right. I was so um, I, you know, I I went to Quaker meeting for a while, and I went to UCC church, and then I I found a Mennonite church and remained there. So I didn't. You know, I became a Mennonite then at that point. Well, thank you for telling me that story. I can't believe after all these years, <laughs> I've never heard that story before. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask me, hey, you know, did you become a Mennonite because your husband's Mennonite? It's like, uh, no, I met him in a Mennonite church. <laughs> I was already there. Yeah, I was already there. I convinced, 
a convinced Mennonite. But anyway, maybe, you know, just closing the loop on the story, I think um, my my sense of horror at the invasion of these countries and the just the destruction that was happening with military force and might was so disturbing for all the reasons that we're talking about today. I think just the, the decimation of the land and the people um, living in those areas with, with complete disregard for, for the consequences. Yeah. So it just profoundly impacted me to see that. And I'm not sure I had the words for it at the time, but I just thought, you know, I have to, I have to, I have to take, I have to take a stand, you know, I can't just, um, I can't just pretend it's not happening. I guess it just felt so fundamental. Yeah. Um, well, I'm so glad that your, your journeying led you to the Mennonites because I wouldn't probably not have met you otherwise if you were with the UCC church. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And by the way, you know, I have, I have wonderful, beautiful UCC friends and Quaker friends. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you, you may not know that I actually interned in a UCC church as a, as a intern pastor and was, I don't know, you know, there was a lot about that tradition that I actually also really liked and identified with. So yeah, me too. But it was the active peacemaking that the um active nonviolence that attracted me to the Mennonites. And I'm I'm aware that not every not every congregation um is of that orientation, but that's what was attractive to me originally. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing more of your, you know, it's weird. I almost don't want to call it faith. It just feels like such a deep orientation to the spirit of life um, and creation. You know, we've, we've talked in previous podcasts about the difference of between faith and reverence. I think what I want to say is thank you for sharing so deeply your reverence um, for the creator and creation. It has, like I said, been powerful and informative for me. And it's changed. I don't know if it's changed the way I live within my Christian faith, but it certainly helped me articulate more clearly how I want to live and how I feel drawn to live within my Christian faith. So thank you for sharing that with me and with us. You bet. And Sherry, I appreciate you and, and all the ways that you have enabled me over these years to further develop, you know, my, my Christian and Anabaptist identity, um, and, um, and square those things with my indigenous identity and spirituality. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by us co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Thank you.